0: Welcome to episode 66 of The Hilo, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Hi, Bandy. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a bit of an end of term
1: feeling. The rosé has been poured. This is, the, this is the podcast episode equivalent of the teacher putting the
0: DVD on, I think. CJ's got a Peroni. Coasters, please. Oh, sorry. Coasters. Coasters. Thanks very much. It was the finale of Love Island for everyone who isn't Dolly, and I went on to Undercover Lover, an unofficial Love Island podcast by the journalist Harriet Minter, to discuss all of the best themes, moments, and thoughts of the series with the author Lucy Vine. You can download on iTunes should you want to listen. If Danny Dyer isn't a primetime host within the next three months, I will eat my cotton socks. Also this week, our new Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, has baffled everyone by referring to his Chinese wife as Japanese. He must be very tired. Or a racist. I I don't know what it is. I did quite enjoy a tweet that was like, um, to be fair, our last Foreign Secretary regularly forgot he was married, because obviously Boris Johnson was subject to quite a few affair (laughs) rumours.
1: Speaking of bizarre, we had, um, I think, my favourite email the Hilo's inbox has ever seen, which is from a man called Jerry, who wanted to book six rooms at the Hilo.
0: This email was brilliant, as was Dolly's reply, where, bear in mind Dolly was meant to be working on the Hilo when this imm- <laughs> immaculately executed email came into my inbox. Dolly confirmed availability with Jerry for six discounted rooms as part of the Hilo's summer bonanza deal. <laughs> And then invented a signature where she called the Hilo one of Condé Nast's top 100 hotels to listen to before you die. I wonder if he was looking for the Hilo Hotel, which does, according to Google, actually exist in Oregon. Does it? Oh, I was a bit sad, actually. I think Jerry was a bot
1: because it bounced back immediately when I replied. And I was very efficient as the Hilo's hotel
0: booking system also in the mailbag were lots of emails pointing out that I made a really careless um, error in the top line last week which was talking about the devastating shooting in Toronto I said that 15 people had been killed what I actually meant to say and I'm so sorry for not double checking is that there were 15 victims 13 of whom were in hospital and two of whom who died Our thoughts are with anyone affected by the tragedy in Toronto and I'm really sorry again for that careless error and thank you to everyone who wrote in and highlighted it for us.
1: We had loads of interesting responses to last week's episode in the mailbag. Thank you to everyone who shared their stories of mental health, particularly experiencing mental health issues in childhood. Pandora and I found them uh, really interesting and enlightening. And thank you also to everyone who wrote in with their thoughts on natural cycles and femtech.
0: We had so many responses, which really chimed with um, a lot of people's concerns, including mine about femtech and how it's quite dangerous to rely on it as a contraceptive at this point in time. Uh, This was an email we got from Izzy. There is such a lack of conversation and education around female contraception and sexual health in general in both women and men. Firstly, my father is a GP and when we discuss natural cycles, he wasn't surprised to hear its popularity, but he also affirmed that this is an ancient technique and definitely not something new or revolutionary. Or presumably 100% foolproof. Secondly, when I was discussing contraception with doctors almost two years ago, I am now 22, I was initially prescribed the implant but voiced my concerns about the amount of hormones. Then I was offered and agreed upon the copper coil, which is a hormone-free alternative. I feel like the copper coil is not promoted enough. It's a small copper coil which is a natural spermicide. I honestly wish more women knew about this because it's so reliable and it can be used as emergency contraception 48 hours after unprotected sex. I have nothing to complain about it. Periods are at first heavy and uncomfortable, but now all is fine. It annoys me and my father that this method is not promoted enough. People are all still sticking with hormonal options even if they don't agree with them. Not that many people know about them, boyfriends included. And that's another annoyance. To me, boys not understanding Mm. their girlfriends' methods. Mm. Alternatively, if a woman did not want her period all the time, there is the hormonal coil, which has about one-eighth of the amount of hormones as the implant or pill. As you can tell, contraception is something I'm really passionate about. And for me, the copper coil offers a safe and healthy alternative. Thank you so much, Izzy. You're right, I Mm. think that's really important. Lots of people I know are massive fans of the copper coil i in the past have actually really liked the hormonal coil
1: yeah i I think to be honest with the coil i've had friends that that really extol the virtues of it and said it's given them freedom and changed their life lives and then i've had friends who haven't had great experiences on it sadly that's just contraception isn't it it is case by case and you have to find out something that works for you and also without sounding like a nun there's only one way to make sure that you have 100 percent risk you know no risk
0: and that's not shagging I recommend it highly
1: (laughs) our 29 year old virgin here in the studio today anyway let me tell you what I've been listening to and enjoying this week I've been catching up on some brilliant episodes of Table Manners with Jessie Ware which we've talked about on the podcast before it's a really funny really charming really warm conversational podcast in which the fantastic musician Jesse Ware and her gorgeous mother have uh, people around for dinner and they talk about their guests lives but they also talk about their relationship with food their history with eating and their family what they ate when they were growing up um, it's all about the kind of emotional and um, anecdotal and uh, memory attachments to eating and i just absolutely love it um i loved tracy thorne who um, is just a great podcast interviewee? I talked about her a few episodes ago because I loved her episode with um, Terry Gross on Fresh Air. Paloma Faith was brilliant. She was actually very honest, Paloma Faith, which I applaud, about losing her baby weight. And there's this kind of quite funny mix-up that she told Jesse before she arrives that she's vegan, but what she meant was, I'm not eating. I'm eating vegan to lose weight. So they kind of could to this huge vegan banquet and she was like, oh, I'm not, I'm not vegan. <laughs> um, but she's very honest about it. And I think, I don't know, I've got a lot of thoughts on this. I think that we can't pretend that this isn't a prison that loads of women are trapped in. And I don't think we should glorify it,
0: but I think it's really important that we're honest about it. It is really problematic. And and when I had had my baby, I was a stone more afterwards i mean i was three stone more before she came out but i was i was a stone more and it wasn't being the stone more that annoyed me it was not being able to wear any of my clothes because they felt like a really key part of my identity and i hadn't been able to wear them for like four million years whilst being pregnant i then lost my baby weight but mostly through um, anxiety if i'm honest Mm -hmm. so i found it very difficult when people congratulated me on looking like i hadn't had a baby because they were just looking at my outer casing whereas Mm. the reason I got there was not necessarily anything that I would advocate or particularly admirable so it is really problematic (laughs) it is and also I remember being with you quite
1: a lot after you just given birth and people said it to you a lot and they I think people are they're trying to be. They're trying to compliment you. And they're trying to make you feel like your old but self. It shouldn't be the first thing we say. It shouldn't be the first thing we say. And also, it's really the least impressive thing that a woman can do. I know being slim. I know. You know what is impressive is that you've she grew a baby and made this baby. But so I'm very. Um, it's Convicted. something I've noticed actually because I think I used to say it a lot as a way. You know, I'm such a blabberer anyway, I kind of just say stuff to fill space. But now I never comment on a woman's physical appearance. I'm actually even quite careful now when I notice that a woman has lost a lot of weight it used to be something I would congratulate her on and it's something I don't I think you just have to
0: think would you say the other way would you be like
1: you look great you've put a stone on no I think think we just need to generally take away the onus from a thing that defines a woman as her what about if you think a
0: woman's been on like a hardcore diet and exercising loads and um, has really wanted to get to a place where she feels more comfortable with her body I'm not saying she's very underweight Mm. So it's not dangerous or anything like that. Mm. If you knew she was working really hard at it, would you say, well, well done? Do you no, know, I
1: would, but I'd say it privately. I think I think that's what I would say. Right, yeah. I think I've re- anything where you're having a group of people make their gaze your body the focus of their gaze. I think it's uncomfortable, and I think women have to do that every day anyway, which is why I'm so okay with women making dark jokes or speaking honestly about the kind of struggles that they have Mm. with being enslaved with these kind of pressures of beauty standards because that is the truth of our fucking Mm. existence
0: I'll take a listen to that podcast because she's actually been really interesting on all sorts around motherhood she's spoken a lot about how difficult she found it to be the primary earner Mm. and the and the struggles she's had being a parent, and how that impacts her relationship with her partner, and how she's raising her child um, in a sort of gender neutral way and not revealing the baby's sex. It's, yeah, she's very, very open and really quite interesting. And yeah, she's obviously like, so. she's very quirky as well, isn't she?
1: Yeah, and actually, I think you might enjoy listening to it because she talks about how she's become totally obsessed with cooking for her baby. And she talks about how she's bought a God, the
0: weaning days are <laughs> oh, three she... weeks away from Are they? Me. Yeah, I just bought some books because so I don't have an effing clue. I just feel like I can't give her baked beans, so I need yeah. to do some homework.
1: <laughs> I think that that's a phase you might really enjoy. Sarah, one of my best friends with my goddaughter, who's one now, she said that she actually loved when Sienna started weaning because she was like, Food, I understand. Do you know what I mean? I know what to give her. I know what she wants I know. What she, I can tell when she finds something tasty and when she doesn't. It's kind of it, like helps with another layer of communication between you and the baby.
0: I did buy nineteen different flavors of Ella's Kitchen purees from Acade this week, <laughs> and I thought she can try. One a day for 19 days and (laughs) see what the hell she likes. Like one of those
1: like (laughs) chef's tasting. Yeah, she can have an Ella's Kitchen (laughs)
0: tasting banquet. They look quite good.
1: (laughs) Well, what Paloma Fait said is she's become obsessed with these muffin trays and then cooking everything in miniature. So she'll put like lasagnas and make like 50 tiny lasagnas and freeze them, whatever. Anyway, love that. Also, Adam Buxton was their first live episode at Latitude and it's just the nuttiest old episode. It's funny, but I do feel for Lenny. Did you see him? No I didn't see him, I was, I was gone that day That was the Sunday I had to leave But listening back to it, basically they get him on And he just doesn't give a shit about food He's just not a foodie, he's a really fussy eater He doesn't really know how to kind of talk about food So at one point he just starts throwing cherry tomatoes at audience members Which was very funny, although I don't know if uh, Jesse and Lenny They say we'll have him round for dinner again I also listened to an excellent archive episode of WTF with Mark Maron, in which he interviews Jason Segel, which was recommended by Friend of the High Lows, Laura Snapes. It's a really funny, very open, quite emotionally vulnerable interview. He talks about his alcoholism in um, great depth, which I haven't heard him speak about before. He talks about ageing. He talks about success and failure. Uh, But the clip that I'm going to play, just because it made me laugh so much, is when he talks about growing up as the only Jew in his school. And here he talks about when his teacher asked him to give a mortifying assembly to explain what his bar mitzvah was to all the students. The headmaster came up and he said, you know, everyone is very excited about your big party. But the kids don't really know what a bar mitzvah is. Would you stand up in front of the school at communion? Yeah, and explain what a bar mitzvah is. So then you cut to the next day, little 13-year-old Jason Siegel standing there like, on Saturday I become a man. (laughs) And it's literally a direct cut to getting punched in the face. I mean, it's not how you want to do it. I would also like to talk about an opportunity in theatre that I think might appeal to some Hilo listeners. It is the Florence Kleiner Bursary, which is a new scheme offered by the Old Vic Theatre for emerging female directors who live outside of London. So Florence Kleiner was a great friend of mine who I wrote about in my book and I actually dedicated the book to. She was passionate about theatre and good directing and good writing. She was a brilliant brilliant writer in fact the section of my book that's often most shared on social media which makes me so happy is a passage that she wrote that I quoted in my chapter about her and she sadly died um, when she was 19 and her family have set up this fund in her memory which will give a bursary to allow someone outside of London to come and work for a year at the Old Vic and I just think it's such a Um, a wonderful opportunity because I was so lucky growing up that I had parents who lived in the suburbs of London so I could go and do these placements in magazines um, or at newspapers and I could always go home and live with my mum and dad but for a lot of people that isn't an option if they live outside of London so this £12,000 bursary will encompass a year-long attachment to the old Vic Um, beginning with the recipient's appointment as Bayliss Assistant Director to Emma Rice on the upcoming production of Wise Children. And then throughout the year they will receive mentoring, invitations to networks to make contacts with like-minded theatre makers, production workshops and opportunities to assist on other productions. The bursary will run from September 2018 to August 2019 and as I say they hope it will allow an emerging female director to take up a position at the old vic who due to financial barriers or other socio-economic factors would not ordinarily seek out the role the deadline was actually last week but they said if you're interested in the role just to get in touch asap we'll link to the information page in the show notes that sounds brilliant thank you so much for sharing
0: that pandora what have you been imbibing culturally this week i have been watching and really enjoying sharp objects which is a eight part drama I've watched four episodes so far on Sky Atlantic starring Amy Adams it just shows like the fact that all of A-list Hollywood are now doing you know the small screen there's such power now in telly and we're so lucky to be able to consume it Sharp Objects is a novel by Gillian Flynn who also famously wrote Gone Girl I actually think Sharp Objects is a lot better Mm -hmm. as a book than Gone Girl it's really dark and that has been parlayed into a really sort of um claustrophobic beautiful but sickly um drama it's 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 really really um powerful and quite kind of terrifying in in a really clever way um so if you're looking for a really great new thriller that's just absolutely brilliant on sky atlantic amy adams is really good sporting cast are really good i'd actually forgotten what happened in the book so i'm kind of enjoying it fresh As you may know, I love short stories and I've been enjoying two different anthologies of short stories this week and I just bought loads more for my holiday including one that I saw reviewed in the Observer's Review magazine called Caroline's Bikini which I'm quite excited about. I read Paris for One by Jojo Moyes who wrote the bestseller trilogy that started with me before you that was made into a film. I absolutely loved them. They're really gentle but I don't use that word to mean that they are... Bad. They there's something really, really empowering about a read which just makes you feel kind of warm and positive and loved from the inside. And I think Jojo Moyes is really brilliant at writing those tales about women for women. I've actually got it here for you, Dolly. You oh, would I'd like love to, to write read it because,
1: you know, I actually, I think that it's far harder to capture happiness than it is sad.
0: Yes. And actually, that's something
1: they taught me. I did a creative writing module at university and I always remember they said... The way the human brain works is we hold on to the vivid nature of sadness so easily, whereas happiness is so much harder to capture, which is why, why Richard Curtis is the most successful writer of our time. So I'm not... I, th- I hate when people are snooty about those kind of stories.
0: Yeah, I find that extraordinary. It's the same way that people are snooty, quote-unquote, as Meg Wallace called it, about the domestic novel, and actually yeah. relationships and their dynamics are one of the hardest things yeah, to write to about. capture, Exactly it's yeah it's a really really lovely anthology of short stories i whizzed through that and i think you'll really enjoy doll i also liked on a completely different note um a satirical book of short stories called american housewives which just absolutely skewers that desperate housewives you know suburban quite miserable waspy woman they're by Helen Ellis and they are really funny and snappy and kind of sour in the bestest way Mm. so really enjoyed both of those and hopefully I will be reading some more short stories soon to recommend you I also read a book this week for a piece I'm writing that and I say this with no hyperbole has changed my life. I have never read a book like this. Have you ever read a book where you can't sit down? You're like too, you're too agitated, but in a good way. I was pacing this room whilst reading it. It's called Fight Like a Girl. And it's by a journalist and activist, an Australian journalist and activist called Clementine Ford. And it's about harnessing your kind of female rage and it talks all about the things that women have to be angry for but yeah. that makes it sound like it's a really uh, i don't know woe is us kind of book and it's just I, I can't really explain how brilliant it is i shared a passage on my instagram that i loved and i got so many notifications saying that you know other people had shared it and tagged me in it. and there was one bit i wanted to read dolly because i know you will absolutely love this about female friendships I love the company of women. Given a choice, I probably value it more than the company of men. But where once no one batted an eyelid when I said the same thing of male friendship, now I'm made to feel strange or hostile when the situation is reversed. Being effusive about my fondness for women turns me into a man-hater or a shrew. Some people treat me with suspicion or feel the need to urge me to reconsider. I'm entreated to admit that men are wonderful, even when the only thing I've said is that I think women are great. Even the act of asking a man not to just assume he can join a group of women is seen as subversive, as if we only come to life when a man is there to talk to us. In fact, it's my experience that women are more likely to shrink than we are to expand when men are present. It's it's brilliant. That's a
1: wonderful passage. Yeah,
0: I think you'd love it. Another agenda-challenging woman who I really admire, especially in her new, very surprising capacity as like an A-list actor in Hollywood, is Jamila Jamil, who was interviewed by Hadley Freeman in The Guardian. So obviously we know her as like, a T4 presenter. She is now living in Hollywood, starring in one of their biggest sitcoms at the moment called The Good Place. So she's oh, wow. had this complete second oeuvre. And Hadley Freeman interviewed her the guardian and i always really admire what she says whether it's about refusing to be retouched um kim kardashian's diet lollies uh, her fluctuating weight and how the paparazzi have treated her mm. and how other people have responded to her and she talks a lot about me too and she says in this piece um she has a good friend called danielle burnfield a movie executive who was assaulted by the actor emil hirsch in 2015 Hirsch was given a fine and sentenced to 15 days in jail. But he's never stopped working, says Jamila. Meanwhile, my friend has PTSD. He's now making Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino's film about the Charles Manson murders. A film about the death of a woman, directed by a man who has admitted he knew that Harvey Weinstein assaulted women, co-starring a man, who assaulted a woman. And she says, it's so dark, how dare any of the people involved in that movie wear Time's Up pins to the Golden Globes. Mm. Can people just not hire men who have almost killed women? And I think that I really... I mean, well done her for saying yeah, that. Yeah, she said... Because
1: it's actually very, very rare that uh, someone invo- that entrenched in Hollywood... Has the guts to say that. Well, the headline
0: of this piece, which is a quote from her, is I don't want to be a double agent in the patriarchy. She says I would rather lose the position I'm in than do it and not say how I feel. What a clever
1: woman. That's such a clever line.
0: And I think just her saying that, and, and like you say, that's brave to kind of say, by the way, my friend... And Emil Hirsch, and you know, say all those various things. Yes, exactly, um, to
1: name people, and that
0: will, black- yeah, to name. That will
1: blacklist her. But it also certain. just shows
0: how I didn't even know that Emil Hirsch was guilty of that. Yeah. And it shows how little has changed. And it reminds me a bit of when Roman Polanski was sitting front row and there were all those other um people accused of sexual assault sitting front row at the recent fashion shows that we that we talked about on the high low. So anyway, I love that interview. I think she's a really cool woman, and I like her so much more the more I read you know about her and the things she has to say lastly it's breastfeeding awareness week and there is a brilliant documentary by the journalist Kate Quilton who I am lucky enough to be on a baby whatsapp group with and she's made a documentary all about breastfeeding and why it's so political and why we still even though it's legal to breastfeed anywhere you want in public it's still such a contentious issue a woman was recently chucked out of Claridges for breastfeeding there Um, i haven't managed to watch it yet so it's a recommendation for myself as much as for all you guys but um i think it's a really vital topic it's definitely a feminist topic and it's one that I think for a lot of women, until you have a baby and breastfeed, you can't understand the enormity of this act and and that relationship and how difficult it is to establish your milk flow and how hard it is to have other people shaming you for feeding somewhere or telling you you can't feed somewhere and the whole thing is mired in stress and a lack of real understanding and another really brilliant thing for breastfeeding awareness week is a special episode of the get it off your breasts podcast with liana bird clemency burton hill and kate quilton again they are also all women on my baby whatsapp group (laughs) so well done girls for your uh, breastfeeding content this week (laughs) it's a really really good listen especially if you've just had a baby they are so eloquent and you'll you'll feel really kind of empathized and loved afar by these women and what they're discussing obviously this might not be particularly interesting if you've just had a baby it also me might be quite hard to listen to it and to watch it if you can't breastfeed. Like I said, it's it's a very political subject. There's kind of criticism around bottle feeding as much so as around breastfeeding, which is why I actually don't talk about my own Mm. personal experiences because Mm. they are that, they are personal and and they are mine. But there's a really shocking statistic, and I don't think any of us would have suspected this, that only 1% of women are still breastfeeding when their baby is six months old. And that is the lowest stat in the entire world in the whole world and you think how privileged our country is and it's because there's just been an absolute lack of support and emphasis so for all the people who were saying you know the breastfeeding Nazis these people who insist on trying to make women breastfeed they're not trying to do that they're trying to really help in a field that has been desperately neglected in women's health for a really long time so I welcome this documentary and this podcast and for any women to feel like they're getting the support they need.
1: From titties to the top line. Take it away, Panda.
0: The The Swedish royal family's crown jewels have been stolen from a cathedral by two suspects who escaped by speedboat. The priceless jewels were taken from Strangnas Cathedral in southeastern Sweden, where they had been on display. A couple from Leeds who tricked their 17 year old daughter into a forced marriage have been jailed for eight years in Bangladesh. The incident occurred in 2016 while the family were on holiday, and the teenage girl contacted the British High Commission, who collaborated with Bangladeshi authorities to bring her safely back to the UK. Labour have come under criticism yet again for anti-semitism, after it was announced that a second member of their party is now under investigation for criticising Labour's controversial move to rewrite the definition of anti-semitism, which is a hugely sensitive topic. Ian Austin, the MP for Dudley North, whose parents were Jewish refugees, was sent a letter warning him that he was being investigated for abusive conduct in Parliament after he expressed anger over Labour's new code. A woman with two wombs has given birth to twins in what doctors describe as a 1 in 500 million birth. Jennifer Ashford has a rare heart-shaped uterus, which means that twins Poppy and Piran House grew entirely separately with their own amniotic sacs and placentas. An app nicknamed Tindra has come under fire for rating public schools according to the best-looking pupils. Toffee, which costs £4.99 and was launched in April, puts pupils of Marlborough School as the most attractive, followed by Uppingham and Wellington. The founder admits that the app is not everyone's cup of tea, but that she is simply trying to bring people together from a similar background. Mental health sufferers will now be able to get a disabled parking permit. The blue badge will extend to those experiencing extreme psychological distress and is hoped to help those with hidden disabilities such as autism, dementia, depression and severe learning difficulties. 103 people managed to escape from a plane which crashed and caught fire after taking off in a blustery storm. Survivors said the Embraer 190 plane smashed down into a nearby field but skidded to a stop virtually intact before bursting into flames. Officials said 49 people had been taken to hospital, most with minor injuries. All passengers are expected to live. Women across Denmark will protest on the streets wearing niqabs and burkas, in defence of a new law banning them from wearing face veils. The Danish government introduced the new law, which came into effect on Wednesday of this week, that prevents people from wearing the garment in public places. The government argues that the veil is strongly oppressive, whilst detractors have said that it is discriminatory against a minority group. A new government bill in France is set to make catcalling illegal after a 22-year-old woman was slapped in the face for telling a man who was wolf-whistling and making lewd comments at her to shut up. The video went viral this week. The bill, which is thought to be introduced this autumn, will impose fines for anyone who is annoying, following and threatening a woman. French Equalities Minister Marlene Schiapper said she was outraged, but unfortunately not surprised, about the incident. Blue wine is now a thing. Vindingo uses a pigment in the grape skin to achieve its electric blue colouring. Around 35,000 bottles of Vindingo are now on sale in France, but its entrepreneurial founder says he has plans to take his crop to the wine capital of Bordeaux. The wine apparently has a fruity taste with cherry, passion fruit, and blackberry. And that was the top line.
1: Related to tindra. I've never heard of it. Which I think might tickle you. Are you on it, Dolly? No. When I was at um, a mixed boarding school, there was a thing that we, there was like a bar on site that we all used to go to. And at the end of the year, it was only the sick formers went to this bar, obviously. Otherwise, that would be inappropriate, wouldn't it? Sixteen-year-olds <laughs> and above only going to drink at school. Um, there was this thing called Last Chance Bar, where Everyone leaving in the upper sixth, the lower sixth would write down anyone who they wanted to get off with at the bar at the last bar. And then, is this is a school, was this an eighteen to thirty-six club? To I asked you. I'd be amazed if this still exists at rugby now. And then the upper sixth would write down who they wanted to get off with. And then there was this horrible, horrible moment where we were all in boarding houses, like Harry Potter, and. The morning of last chance bar, this sort of cupid would come and deliver notes saying who your like matches were. If anyone had matches to like set you up to have a snog that evening at bar, I wrote down every single boy's name (laughs) in upper sixth. Every single boy in my year, do you have any matches I got?
0: I feel like you're gonna say none. One. (laughs) I love that this is your contribution to tindra not just a slightly sad story of your youth but also my that is tindra basically my catholic single sex boarding school self would have been so fucking jealous of everything you just said not if you looked like me when you were 17 trust da, 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 da. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen our 29 year old virgin Jane Garvey announced on Radio 4's Women's Hour this week that Hey Guys is never an appropriate greeting for a group of people that includes women. She said you should group men and women as Hi People and that Hi Guys was only okay for a daringly informal guest speaker at the annual meeting of the Society of People Named Guys. Thoughts, Doll? I think this is something that my dad would say and I think this is more about a generational
1: difference when it comes to formality and informality than it is about gender. Guys is something my mum says all the time, and I often see my dad flinch when she says it, and it's because she's Canadian. And I do think it's just, it's an Americanism, really, which means that there's an implied kind of familiar register, and I think that's probably the thing that's bothering her more than the gender thing. But I don't know, I don't know Jane Garvey
0: personally, but that's just a hunch that I have. The Times have called it a feminist backlash, which seems slightly mock incendiary. My favourite comment under the Times article online is from Hutcho, who says. Might be best not to talk to women at all. It seems to be a bit dangerous. Whatever you do or say, however innocent. An absolute classic, that comment. You see that comment. wheeled out again and again. I personally don't have any truck with hi guys. I don't find it anti-feminist. I think it's slang and I actually think it's quite inclusive slang. Mm. I think guys is gender neutral and why can't a guy be a girl? It's pretty unisex. If we can have big dick energy, we can be a guy. And I'd actually argue that we can be a dude too. I say dude, I also say man quite a lot, and I said it to
1: someone quite official the other day, and I I don't think she liked it. I sort of, I saw her, I saw in her eyes that she didn't like it, and I forgot that it's just the way that me and a lot of my friends address each other, and um, I think maybe she just found it odd, I think she maybe thought I was, I was like, hey man, I mean, I don't know why I said it, even as I said that, I don't know why I said it to someone official, I think she found it very strange.
0: Yeah, that one's probably a bit more problematic, and um, we'll park your inappropriate greeting for another story in another day. The etymology of Guy is actually quite interesting. I'd assumed, like you mentioned earlier, it was just an adopted Americanism for us. But according to my research, Google it was originally an eponym for Guy Fawkes so you burn Ah. a guy or an effigy and it was first used for a group of men in 1867 before becoming a gender neutral plural used by teenagers in the 80s though of course that's less substantiated i know you're with me on this doll the alternatives to guys are quite dire there isn't a single easy friendly informal way to address a group of men and women together there's Hey friends, which I've used before and feels a bit odd and serial killery. Weird. There's hey folks, which makes it sound like I'm trying to be Keith Urban. It comes accompanied with a steps and then a pair of cowboy boots, which is a bit embarrassing when you're from Colchester. I uh, hope hey folks is horrible. Hey cats, you could try. You could bring it back.
1: Hey cats, hey hepcats. What's a hepcat? It's just like a sort of like fifties jazz term, which is I really think of. Okay, like let's Britney. try Hepcats. Hey,
0: Hepcats. To be honest, it isn't even about mixed-sex parties. When I'm emailing women, I still opt for guys. It doesn't particularly infuriate me when I'm called a girl in the way I know it does some, though it does call to mind Britney singing I'm a girl, not yet a woman. But I do see how it can be a bit infantilizing in the way that I find women addressing a group of grown men as the boys is both sort of sexually coy and performatively innocent. It's also very traditional and mm. binary in the idea that, like, the boy's retire to the drawing room for like whiskey whilst the women stay in the kitchen tidying up i absolutely abhor ladies i find it really middle tier management on a friday night it's really <laughs> passive aggressive anytime we get an email that begins hey ladies i dive it inside and can't breathe the rest it's actually very triggering for me and i use that in a satirical sense please don't troll me. pandora's seem triggered charlie can you see to pandora
1: Um, We had uh, some hysterical woman email into the high low once saying that she was turning off because she found it so offensive and patronising that we often refer to women, particularly our female friends, as girls. Well, maybe it's something I've only recently stopped doing then. I must have done that a lot for her to get so cross with (laughs) us. She was really angry about it and I have to say I did not cry into my pillow that night knowing that we would lost her as a listener because I really like calling my friends girls. I think that a man constantly addressing a group of women as girls is irritating as it's loaded with context Mm. and it's very barbed but I think me calling my closest friend girls is tied up in the fact that to me whether we're 15 or 50 we always feel like little kids so i really like calling them girls because it kind of is in tune with how childish we are with each other and it actually always warms my heart when i meet women in their 60s or 70s and they talk about their girls i think there's something really evergreen and, and lovely about that well
0: maybe i should bring it back again what about hey ladies oh The Hey Ladies email is now legendary. I mentioned it on the Hilo, I think it was in April, after two American writers named Caroline Moss and Michelle Markowitz wrote an epistolary novel based around these eight best friends who use WhatsApp threads and email chains and group text messages, which all pivot around that prototypical Hey Ladies format, which means it will involve a Google Cal scheduling error, a ton of exclamation points, and a request for $60 by the time you reach (laughs) the end of that email. There's something about Hey Ladies email which means you feel on the verge of a panic attack and always owing money i think hey ladies is the stuff of hens and inflatable flamingo nightmares as well as the middle management friday night incidentally i really want to read that book it got a mm-hmm. great write-up as it were on call your girlfriend and new york mags website the car
1: it's very true and i think that that's correct as to
0: why the minute i
1: see hey ladies pop up in my whatsapp um, messages or on my emails it, f- it does
0: fill me with such dread Jane Garvey's suggestion that we should all enter a bar and holler "Hey, people!" is one of those suggestions that seems perfect on paper, and it's like you know, very sort of PC. But it's actually the stuff of nightmares if used in a practical sense. I can almost imagine an entire bar shuddering to silence when I attempted that. You know, is is this debate all a bit of a middle class eye roll, or is it of genuine feminist? Importance as much as a unisex, gender-neutral loo is. I just can't decide if I think it's something we should progress on. But then maybe I'm biased because all the alternatives make me want to heave. Mm. I wonder if I'm going to be forced to simply say hello rather ominously to a collective gathering and then nothing further. Luckily I'm very
1: rarely in a mixed gang of people because I don't work in an office, I work from home and I'm also a bit of a loner, so uh, it's not something I have to think
0: about too much, how I address them. Slate wrote a pretty persuasive piece back in 2016 about this, with the slug being how gender neutral really is the term guys, and it argued that guys has a male as default paradigm. Though it also suggested that if we talk to kids with guys, meaning both men and women, that could shift with permanence. Language, as we all know, is evolutionary and constantly in flux. There'll be some people who have a more progressive approach and some people who are helmed to tradition. But here are the Hilo, we're team hey guys and hey girls. Sorry, Jane. <laughs>
1: In today's second topic, we want to talk about bad jokes and specifically how much they should define us. Last week, South African comedian and talk show host Trevor Noah was forced to defend himself when an offensive joke about Aboriginal women made during a stand-up comedy show in 2013 resurfaced on social media. The clip, which has since been removed from YouTube, sees the comedian begin by saying all women of every race can be beautiful. And I know some of you are sitting there now going... Oh Trevor, yeah, but I've never seen a beautiful Aborigine. It's not always about looks. Noah then acts out playing a didgeridoo in a suggestive manner. Many of those who criticised the clip were Australian, where Noah is heading next month for a comedy tour. Some called for a boycott of the shows
0: and also acknowledged that Noah had not expressly apologised for the joke. This was brought to my attention by one of my favourite podcasts, The Week Unwrapped, who discussed it on this week's show. I want to insert a clip here of the team discussing it because I think that argument is quite foundational to any discussion being had about it. The
1: mechanic that he was using to get to the punchline was bad taste and something he shouldn't have said, but there was a mechanic. like, mm. the, But there was a punchline, which, again, <laughs> difficult to say on the show, was about filleting a didgeridoo, mm. uh, which <laughs> arguably, you know, as a comedian, I can sort of understand why he would, you know, he's, he's come up with a punchline and how do I get there? And this is four or five years later. Mm. And it's not inconsistent, is it, for him to say, I now regret doing that, but at the time it felt like a reasonable thing to do. And it's revisionism to say it didn't happen. I think there are two topics to discuss here. The first is comedy and the second is shaming. Both are topics that are really on my mind at the moment. I think what comedy is and where it's going is something that's being examined right now, and rightly so. I think the discussion is splintering. Hannah Gadsby and Nanette show one side of that discussion, which is that comedy should be progressive Mm. and a tool for change. And then there's another camp that is voicing fears that our focus on inclusivity should not bleed so much into comedy. that It negates
0: the integrity or the truth or the expression of the material. Mm, It's very much becoming polarised in the Hannah Gadsby and Nanette camp. I mean, I do find myself thinking time and time again about the concept of women parlaying their pain into a joke. The relief of tension... The onus on the marginalised community whether that's women or more specifically in Hannah's case lesbians or I'm sure many other marginalised communities feel like that. In truth I'm interested by both
1: sides of the argument and I think the key is that there should be room for both. Mm. I had an interesting debate with a friend over the weekend actually who said that she's not interested in comedy that's purely catharsis for the storyteller and as you mentioned it was in relation to Hannah Gadsby's theory that self-deprecating humour doesn't help um, oppressed communities. And I have to say I do disagree with that because I think that there should be enough space for comedy that is supposedly wallowing and cathartic and also comedy that is more demonstratively active in its protest for change.
0: I also think that if we don't allow art to be catharsis then why should we expect people to bother making it? Yes, you know, why exactly. why, sh- why shouldn't they be allowed to... Um, be rewarded for their kind of you know work that they've done
1: yeah because I th- some people will be pioneers of change some artists but some people won't yeah. and i think what I, what i believe now is that we should enter a world where all is legitimate and there's equal space for both.
0: I think if we subscribe to the notion that everything we do should serve the greater good and can't, say, be beneficial to us just on a singular level, well, then I think we're all a bit fucked, especially given that we are products of neoliberalism, which places like the self and the singular at the very kind of forefront of social politics, Mm. actual politics, economics. I would warrant that what your friend is espousing would just function as a tool to self-silence out of fear of not speaking with out of fear of not speaking with everything we say to the masses.
1: And also it never really is a singular experience because the Someone, whole point yeah. of when you share those stories be it in a self deprecating way other people see them way. reflected exactly and there's a moment of release in that for those who mm-hmm. identify whether it offers a solution of how to change or not what I do think is that a joke can only ever be made at the expense of the person making it or punching mm-hmm. upwards for me that's just a foundational rule of comedy as it is for most people which is why Trevor Noah's joke is
0: so obviously unacceptable that's a really good term you said there punching upwards rather than punching down I totally see what you mean by that it's a really interesting one and it's quite complicated this because i really admire a lot of what trevor noah does and his story and how he came to have the incredibly powerful job he has in america is one of kind of real determination he grew up under apartheid in south africa the fact that he became the host of the daily show previously helmed by john stewart a show that goes out to the very conservative very old school like hugely mainstream america is no mean feat as both a man that grew up under apartheid in South Africa and a black man. He's not some, you know, white dickhead who's completely unself-aware and has never had any kind of trauma in his life making these cruel jokes. But whose mouth the joke is from Mm. is important. It doesn't make it okay, but I think it does reframe it. For instance, he got in trouble recently for congratulating the French football team on winning the World Cup and, you know, saying, well, it's as much a win for Africa as it is for France because a lot of the French team are black men. People complained about this, saying that he was denying the French team their Frenchness, and his response was, I am actually merely including myself in their Africanness. And I found that really interesting. I could completely see what he was trying to do. He was actually trying to be inclusive, not exclusive. But the didgeridoo joke, of course, punching down, as you say, is a completely different kettle of fish. But as Oli Mann said on The Week Unwrapped, You have to hope when you tell a joke and it's crass and it dates quite quickly or was never really appropriate in the first place but it was a different climate and a different audience, Mm -hmm. the audience won't judge you forever on it and that they will understand that like them you have grown up and wouldn't make the same joke now. And as Ollie said, which I think was really interesting, it's rarely your audience and your fans and your followers that are offended by that joke you made in the past, it's... People who aren't perhaps a fan of your work aren't familiar with it and haven't grown with you. It's coming to it out of context. Because I think it used to be that, like, comedians, you know, they had their fan base and that's what mattered. Whereas now it feels like every comedian has to be everything to everyone, which is the problem I think we have with things in general. Mm-hmm.
1: I recently wrote a piece about the future of comedy for The Sunday Times Style and my conclusion was this, I think the only thing that truly determines what is acceptable with comedy, what's funny and what isn't what is hurtful and what isn't, and what those boundaries are, is time I think that's the determiner I think we forget how quickly our collective appetite for comedy changes if you look at how so many of Generation Z just totally do not understand why millennials and Generation X found friends funny for all those years. Or look at how our generation and Generation X don't understand how our parents and grandparents laughed at bloody Bernard Manning jokes. Look at how ubiquitous minstrel shows were. And really not that long ago, the people who made these jokes or laughed at these jokes were not fundamentally bad people. They were uninformed people who would, I'm sure, many of them in the context of present day and knowing everything we know and hearing the stories we've heard, would be
0: appalled that they ever found this funny. I'm not saying... can I just insert here that Punch and Judy is a man beating up his wife? Yeah. The, like, most loved puppet show of all time. Gets pretty depressing when you start going through everything that was enjoyed. Yeah, and I
1: think... I'm not saying that Trevor Noah's joke was akin to that level of sort of ancient ignorance. It's telling that the reason he stopped it is that An Australian audience member apparently had to spell it out for him that it was offensive. But what I do think is apparent is that we're in a time of enormous social change and social awareness, which Pandora and I constantly talk about, we think is a wonderful thing. But it does mean that our comedy, our TV shows and
0: our art is going to start dating very quickly. I have to say I'm very cautious of revisionism. It's happening with history and literature a lot at the moment. I think it was just last week or the week before, if the very famous poem by Rudyard mm-hmm. Kipling, was scrubbed off the wall at Manchester University because his work was written from a colonial perspective. And of course, with Friends and Sex in the City and people saying that these shows wouldn't get made now, of course they wouldn't. Neither probably would Cheers and Frasier and Monty Python and all those much-loved series. I think the question
1: of revisionism is interesting. I remember you and I had a chat a while back off the back of a top line news story which was that an Italian opera house had changed the ending of Carmen with a new feminist agenda so that it didn't end with a woman dying at the hand of a man. I think this is really powerful, particularly when violence against women is still so ubiquitous. However, I would also say it would be a great shame if that revised ending of Carmen was then made into the default ending for all productions. I don't think telling that original story is about glorifying violence against women. I think it's about telling the truth. And the truth of the past is uncomfortable sometimes, but it's so, so important. It's crucial for our understanding of ourselves collectively and historically. And it's crucial for making sure that we progress, I think. And we can't rub out history for not being palatable enough for our modern palates.
0: That really brings to mind Nancy being murdered by... Bill Sykes and Oliver, you know, that was such a powerful story in my in my mm. childhood. Would we erase that? I think that as you say, that really reflects a kind of truth in Victorian times yeah, and exactly. domestic abuse. To bring it back to the didgeridoo Trevor no it was a man making a joke about marginalized people knowing how to give good fellatio it's gross especially as aboriginal women face so much discrimination in australia he might not have known about this and of course the argument is then well do your research and then see whether or not your your joke is sort of like a bit off colour or ragingly offensive Mm. but the controversial talking point in Australia and it has been a talking point for a few years is the very sad story of an aborigine woman named Lynette Daly who was raped and killed and yet the suspected killers five years on have still not been on trial if it was two indigenous people who'd done it to a white girl they'd be in jail her stepfather Gordon Davis said Clementine Ford's book that I mentioned earlier Fight Like a Girl talks a lot about it um because she is Australian and she writes, you know, a lot about that kind of specific context um, and how marginalized and how badly treated Aboriginal women are and also the health issues and just like education basically Mm. and information, we just don't, as non-Australian people, I just don't think we are aware of, of actually how yes. horrific a lot of the surrounding context is. And actually a lot of people in Australia either don't know or care. And that's that's Clementine's issue. So for Trevor Noah to make a joke, but based on that, based on what happened to Lynette Daly, for Trevor to make a joke about this Indigenous community... Which to is a probably so, very ignorant audience. Which is so badly treated and neglected historically and still in modern life, is really rank. Mm. And what's interesting about the Trevor
1: Noah joke is that I've read differing reports but from as far as I can see he's not a properly apologised which I am surprised by. For me this is not a joke that warrants this man's life being ruined or his career being cancelled or all his shows being boycotted but I do think there's no way of reasoning your way out of this joke. He's laughing at two oppressed communities of which he's not a part of and beyond that he's assessing and mocking women's physical appearance in a way that's not even amusing. Trevor
0: has said that some jokes don't translate and that this joke is one of them. He also suggested rather weakly that some people find some stuff funny and others don't. Although I have seen him on his Twitter replying to lots of angry Australians who have been like, well, you know, why don't you come here and educate yourself or why don't you come? I think there was some... museum or foundation, you know, to do with education of um, Aborigines and the history of Aborigines. And he said, yeah, you know, I'd love to come visit your area and perhaps you could show me. So I don't think it's perhaps as kind of awful as maybe these media storms. Yeah, his reaction reaction is not necessarily as belligerent as we might, might think. But it's a learning curve to all really is do your research before making a joke. But then of course, like you say that does raise the argument about comedy and the role of provocation and PCdom doesn't it maybe Trevor felt like he was allowed to make a joke like that because he grew up as a marginalized individual in South Africa he had to overcome so much to be the successful comedian Mm -hmm. and talk show host he is now to even get to America but then to flip that back does one marginalized community get to make jokes about another especially when one is male and the other is female so on and so forth. I don't know, to be honest, I don't know if you can equate the two. It is certainly not like a white man making a joke about a marginalised community. No, I, the context it, yeah, is different. Yeah,
1: and I do think that's a really interesting point that you raised, and I and I think I do think it's clumsy. You know, I, I take enormous offence when I hear misogynist jokes come out of the mouth of gay men. To me, that's...
0: they. Yeah, they feel like
1: maybe... That's totally different. You know, it's totally different experiences, and I think... I think that to to conflate the two and believe that one can punch down to the other, I don't. don't I think that's problematic.
0: Yeah. I can the see comedian
1: Shappy Corsandy wrote a piece for the Independent titled "Why It's Wrong to Call Out People Like Trevor Noah for the Off-Color Jokes They Made in the Past." The wrong title. In it, she says, "I have said jokes in the past which I no longer like or stand by. Every comedian has." comedy is like an iceberg constantly moving forward and you have to move with it if you want your audiences to continue to relate to you I may have moved on from those jokes but I am not ashamed that I ever made offensive jokes it's how I found my persona and how I learned to read the room interesting sometimes when you're on stage very politically incorrect things come out of your mouth in this job it takes a hell of a lot of time, experience and self-awareness to be able to trust and act on instincts without being a slave to fear even then you can still misjudge If even after a comic has apologised, which Shappy says Noah did a long time before the footage of this routine was unearthed, if you still decide that one routine or one joke is the sum total of who they are, rather than putting up with stand-up comedy, you'd better off just sticking with bingo.
0: That's really true. That's like someone listening to the Hilo and disagreeing with one thing we say and saying, well, I'm never listening to them again. Mm. Or someone reading a piece we've written and saying... I'm never going to read that writing again. Well, I just think it cuts you off from a great Stand- many
1: experiences and thoughts
0: and lines
1: of debate. If, I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is, is this: if this is one thing that you disagree with and the rest
0: of someone's work you found interesting, well, obviously you don't have to is, listen this to is someone. This is what I think is interesting, is the rest of his work is like really quite impressive, mm. especially given what I've said of, of, of what he'd necessarily overcome to get there. I think that piece by Shappi is really interesting. It's written by a woman and a woman of colour about a black man and I actually think that's something important to note it's not a white male comic writing in defence of another white male comic
1: I think as Shabby Sandy says in her piece and as we touched on last week in fact it's important to remember that we are so much more than our worst comment or our worst stand up routine or our worst day and I think sometimes particularly online we have to think about how life pans out and how conversation pans out when you're sitting in a social situation sometimes you just say something that's wrong I know I certainly have I've misjudged a room or a group or I've been in a strange mood or I've felt tired or I've felt sort of insecure and I say something that just doesn't land it's exactly the same in the online world if someone made an offensive joke at a dinner table that was hugely out of character for them we would not march them out of our house and tell them to go sit in a dark locked room for months on end and never dare get in touch with us again we'd say to them, hey, that's not cool, and then we'd move on. I once heard someone say, I think it was John Ronson, actually, on Adam Buxton. He said that our civilian policing of morality is indicative of a society trying to survive without the historic, former, rigorous and
0: oppressive structure of religion. And I just think that's so true. Absolutely. That's an argument I've heard before, and I'm sure we'll hear it again. And it's really interesting I think we forget now that the role that religion has historically played at shaping and governing a society. It's like we're now in this post agnostic moral code and we're all sort of societally speaking Navigating the barriers mm. and the limits to play devil's avocado about you saying you wouldn't march someone out of a dinner party for an off color joke, or they bitch about the money you're doing the washing up. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor is making vast amounts of money based off That's those jokes. That's true, that is so true. So, someone making a shit joke is only really changing the outcome of dinner party or your personal mm. relationship, mm. it's not changing the um, kind of social structure around comedy and how how Aboriginal women are, are, are thought of i mean like this is the for, you know maybe this is something we should have spoken about before but this is the first time we've spoken about how Aboriginal women are a really marginalized community mm. and how their abuse or, or sexual assault has not taken seriously in australia like it is to white women the fact that everyone's now talking about this joke and that being their first introduction to aborigine women well, doesn't mean they'll then go away and do more research. I don't. I don't know. I mean, there's pros and cons to this kind of thing being exposed, isn't there?
1: I think you're right that obviously it does. It does entrench it in a different context when you know that that person is making money. I just think, I just think that I have said things in the past that have not been recorded. That. If they were to be used as a defining yardstick for who I was, then I'd be hung. I'd be hung. And I think, you know, my hat goes off to the person who truly believes that they don't have that in their past either. So I don't know. You know my thoughts on this. I think we just have to be a little bit more patient with people. And I think the key is I'm not saying I want to live in a world without consequence or without boundaries. I think our increasing awareness of the importance of sensitivity with language and how we address and speak about communities is vital, but I also just don't want to live in a world where we're always searching for ed- evidence of someone being a bad person whose life or career should be over because of a misjudged comment. It's important that the mistake is highlighted, certainly it's in- it's important it's highlighted publicly, it's important the person recognises where they've slipped up. Um, and it's important that they apologize. But then I think it's important we learn and we move on, and that for me is progression. In the summertime
0: when the weather is high, you can stretch right up and touch the sky when the weather's fine, you got women, you got women on your mind. Hilo is now taking a summer break to don a sombrero, drink pina coladas and read 487 books which we'll be sure to tell you about when we're back which is on the 6th of September we will not be replying to emails, tweets please don't leave an Instagram message asking when we're coming back again because I'm telling you, right now babes we're coming back on the 6th of September also just a final note I've been getting a lot of
1: emails about do I have the link for this What was the episode of that that I recommended? Show notes! One final time. Girlfriend just needs to check the show notes. Okay? Girlfriend just needs to check the show notes. Um, That said, we will miss you all. And also I like that you mentioned um, a woman wearing a sombrero because incidentally I've already formatted my out of office and that is the picture. So Pandora is off to play with her baby. And Dolly is off to play with herself. And Charlie is off to play with his award-winning marrows.
0: <laughs> Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. You can email us thehilo at gmail.com. We won't reply because we're on holiday. You can tweet us at the Hilo show. We won't reply there either. Oh, and also, if you want to hear how overexcited excited Dolly got that we are almost on our summer break, just listen to the end of the jingle at the end of the podcast to hear what happened when I gave her a glass of rose. Bye bye. <laughs> uh- I
1: can't believe, oh my god. I can't believe I've broken something. Everything alright? I'm fucked up. Hang on, hang on. Whoa.